Good morning. That was a very powerful communion, eh? Thank you so much, Castillos, for helping us see God work in your lives. And also God worked in another person's life over the weekend in the cat ministry with her parents, our disciples in Singapore. But she was baptized Saturday, Friday night. So Tanya, go ahead and stand up. She was baptized. Yes. Fantastic. That's, that's great news. And the Bible is full of stories of people coming to God and also coming back to God, being restored to God. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to have our brother John Gaelic restored to the fellowship. So if you can come on over, John. Again, the, from, from front to cover, the Bible has plenty of the theme of reconciliation and restoration. Many things are restored, but specifically people get restored back to the fellowship. And many of you may know John, some of you may not, may not know John, but uh, he's here to share a few words about being, being welcomed back to our church. Uh, good morning. You've already heard my name's John Gallick. Um, I left the church about six years ago. Uh, and since then, I've had some uh, serious challenges that have forced me to be very humble and to re- reassess my life. Um, these challenges may result in serious consequences. Uh, however, I'm ready to see justice done. Um, at almost the same time, uh, Nick Salamo called me, and this made me realise that, uh, that God is calling me back. Um, God has brought me, brought me back to my senses. Um, I just want to say how sorry I am to all of all the members of the church uh, for leaving and I hope that you'll forgive me. Um, and if I've wronged anyone, I'd like to apologise. And I'd like to share a verse, um, James 5. Uh, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save them from death and cover over multitude of sins. Uh, thank you to everyone who's helped me to come back to, to you and to God. And uh, I pray for you to I ask you to pray for me to, um, during this time. Thank you. It's great to see you back. And then when, whenever Nick Salamo calls you, it, it might be the, the voice of God in disguise. So watch out for Brother Love. Let's go, Nick. Come on, brother. So 2 Corinthians 8 is our text this morning. If you're visiting, we just go through a book of the Bible, and wherever it lands, that's what we preach on. So we're in 2 Corinthians 8, and we're going to read all of chapter 8 and a little bit of chapter 9, and then talk about three points that we can learn and take away from that this morning. Amen? Let's pray together really briefly, and then let's start reading the Word of God. Thank you, God, for your mercy and your grace and and how it's displayed throughout the world, but also in in very precise ways in people's lives. We got a front row seat of that with the Castillos seeing you work in their life and a front row seat with John coming back to church. And we pray that we can have front row seats when we put our minds and hearts in front of your word. And despite how flawed we are and how fickle we are, you always persevere with us, God. And I pray that your spirit really allows our minds to understand truth, but but not just understand it, but really to embrace it and live it out so that we imitate you. We pray all this in your son, Jesus name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, second Corinthians chapter eight, we're going to start in verse one and read to chapter nine, verse five. In 
in verse 1, it reads, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered too little did not have too little, from the Exodus account. In verse 16, thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus, the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What a great brother that must be, eh? What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We won't avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. We're taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives for the church and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so the churches can see it. Chapter 9, verse 1. There's no need for me to write to you about this service, although I'm doing it anyway, to the Lord's people. For I know your eagerness to help and have been boasting about it to the Macedonians telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me, 
and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for this generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. What in the world is all that about? Well, in chapter 8, he switched topics. He says, now, and so he's switching topics, so we know he's not talking about their repentance anymore and their joy that all that brought him, but he's talking about finances. And you may be able to get that drift. There's a church in Jerusalem that has a financial need, and Paul is organizing a collection from all different churches so that they can meet that need. Now, if you know anything about the church in Jerusalem, it's the first one. It's the mother church. And in Acts chapter 4, people are selling their possessions so that other people can have and the church can be equal. So some people may have lost possessions and give up possessions. In Acts chapter 6, there's widows that are being taken care of. And then we know from history that a lot of Jews come to Jerusalem as they age so that they can be buried in the Holy Land. There's this thought if they were buried in the Holy Land, they'd be first for the resurrection. So as Jerusalem continues on, some people that are older come and the church has to take care of them as well. So all of these factors combine equaling Jerusalem is is a great church, but it has financial needs. And so the the reason for this collection is we want to help out the sister church in Jerusalem. And so if you'll see up on the top right, those are the Macedonian churches. Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi. They all say, hey, we want to help. We want to contribute to Jerusalem. And then further on the slide in the middle is Corinth. They also say, we want to help. We want to contribute to Jerusalem as well. So the net result of that is what Paul will do on the top left is he'll collect the finances from all of those churches. And he'll go all the way over to Jerusalem at the bottom right of your screen and deliver this gift. Now, it's a lot different to deliver finances 2,000 years ago than it is today. PayPal didn't exist, bank transfers, wire transfers, all that didn't exist. So if, if one man says... I'll take the money all the way over to Jerusalem. You think, yeah, right. We're sending some, some other brothers with you, right? So there's, there's no, this is to be above reproach. And so that's what's going on in here. And so, but, but from this, we really learn a lot of great things, right? And so we'll look at those this morning. We learned that there is a grace of giving that, that shows up in this passage. We learned that talk is cheap as well, as Paul will tell the church. And we learned that comparisons can stir us to action as well. Let's talk about this grace of giving. If, if you read it, and, and as you heard it, it may have even been obvious this, this section is about money. How many of you got that sense as we read it? But interestingly, absent from the entire chapter 8 and also chapter 9 is the word money. Not present at all. Even in the original Greek. There's a financial collection intended for the church in Jerusalem, and Paul never once says, we need to raise some money. He uses a lot of different language. Look at verse 1. The grace of God that that he's given the Macedonian churches, that means God had been gracious to those three churches I showed you. They felt like, we want to give back, so we experience grace, we want to give grace. That's the language he used in verse 1. Verse 4, he refers to this financial gift as a sharing 
in this service of the Lord's people. Sharing is the word fellowship in Greek. And oftentimes you have fellowship with one another. Or you can have fellowship together in the gospel. This is the first time he says there's a a sharing when we help other people financially. Verse 6. This is an act of grace on your part if you give. Verse 7. Excel in the grace of giving. Chapter 9, verse 1, this is a service to the Lord's people. So over and over and over, you get the impression that this is an extension of grace. He never once says, let's raise some money. And so grace is, when somebody understands it, they spontaneously want to give to other people. There's a grace of giving. And we show, we understand what's been given to us when we give to others. And then, if you think about the reality of this gift, Jerusalem is a, purely, is a purely Jewish church. They did not like Gentiles. Macedonia, Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, Corinth, predominantly Gentile church. So they collect this gift, and it comes to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem says, are we going to take this money from Gentile pagans? I mean, if we do, what are we saying? Are we saying we're brothers and sisters? That, that's, man, that would have been like Australia sending over money. We say, hey, man. <laughs> are we going to accept money from the Aussies? You know, but, but that's what's going on here. The Jewish and Gentile Christians, they're, they're saying, hey, we, we want to partner. We want to be gracious. There's a graciousness in our giving. And we want you to accept us as brothers and sisters. And Jerusalem says, we want to accept you as brothers and sisters. So you see how, even at a financial level, grace is breaking down these barriers. When people are gracious. And of course the model in our text is verse 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich. Yet for your, your sake he became poor. So that through his poverty you might become rich. It's not like Jesus was wealthy and he left his wealth to come to earth. But he did leave the wealth of heaven. The divine abode. To come to earth and literally became poor for our sake. So there's no other model in history or religion of a God leaving his divinity to come and become human and help humanity. So we have this model in generosity. I mean, it's kind of like any one of us leaving the first world of New Zealand where we have Nice homes and high-speed internet connection, hopefully. We have basic resources. We have food, water, shelter. We have public transport. We have paved roads. Paved roads. We had fancy malls and fancy restaurants and fancy, fancy cars and, and fancy clothes. And just making a decision to say, I'm going to leave that lifestyle and I'm going to deliberately, intentionally move to a third-world developing country. And I'm going to move into a home with dirt floors, no furniture, no internet access. Forget about your speed. You got no internet, no access to basic resources, food and water are scarce, no public transport, no paved roads, no fancy malls, no restaurants, and clothes are simply just basic what you have on your back. Now, if someone stood up this morning and said, that's what I'm going to do, we'd all think that person has a few marbles loose. But we we would all be kind of stirred by that as well, because that's an example of somebody giving up something 
to do something else. That's what Jesus does in this example. He becomes poor so that we become rich. I don't know about you, but I think I and all of us need a model like that. Why? Because humans are not naturally generous. Despite what you think about yourself, you're not naturally generous. The Bible has a story that humanity is broken and fallen and stingy. All right? That's just the truth of the matter. Even pagan philosophers, this guy named Seneca, he's actually quite cool historian, Roman philosopher. You can check him out. He was alive during the time of Jesus. And he also becomes a political advisor to the emperor Nero. So he's a smart guy, to say the least. But he has this treatise or essay called On Benefits, and it talks about graciousness. And here's what he says. A pagan philosopher says this about humanity. Men must be taught to be willing to give. Why? Because you and I are stingy naturally. That's just the root core of our humanity. We're stingy and selfish. We're selfish creatures. And even in this passage, Paul alludes to the Exodus and says, hey, in the Exodus, they were told, don't take too much and you'll be all right. And don't take too little and you'll be all right. And in that account, it says some people kept more. Like even when they were specifically commanded not to, they kept more. And as a result, their manna became maggots. So you think being stingy doesn't have an effect? Yeah, it does. What you try to hold on to will eventually rot. When you become stingy. And, and think about this concept. Look out at the world, right? Look out at New Zealand, anywhere. It's tragically divided. On every level, like economic level, social level, cultural, education. And all the smart people get together and say, we need better programs. We need better government. We need better reform. And all those things are fine. But the gospel says, no, we need to learn about grace. The human heart is stingy, and we want to we wanna be selfish. And here's this model of Jesus coming and saying, let me give up everything so that you can have more. Is there more evidence of grace or greed in your giving? Because I think it obviously applies financially, right? It definitely has a financial flavor to it. And the second thing is, are you excelling? That's what Paul calls the church in Corinth to do. Are you actually excelling in your giving? If so, that means you understand the grace of God. If not, that means you don't quite get it yet. And you need to excel more and more in the grace of giving. Secondly, talk is cheap. You've heard that phrase, right? In this passage, Paul is, is, is clear, but he's also a bit subtle by, by saying, you guys said you wanted to give. So flat out give. That's kind of the short version of what's going on in here. Verse 7, look at that. Since you excel in all these other areas, in speech and in faith and in knowledge, and the church in Corinth felt puffed up, we're knowledgeable, we're faithful, we have all these special gifts. And Paul says, man, that's great. But are you excelling in giving as well? So he says, "I, I hear what you're saying in verse 10 through 12. Basically, that's just saying... Corinth raises their hand. We like to give to the church in Jerusalem. However, as time passed, they didn't fully give. That's what's going on here. And Paul says, now you said, remember last year you said you wanted to give? Now let your willingness match that by being complete. Finish the task. Hey, talk is cheap. You said you wanted to give. Now's the time to give. 
Verse 16 and following is kind of like, you know what? We're just going to flat send some brothers over there. Titus, the other two brothers who won't be named for some reason, but the church thinks highly of them. We're going to send them over so that, so that when they come over, they can, they can help assist you be generous. Because you said you were going to give. And so now we got these guys, they're on their way. And in chapter 9, verse 2, Paul's saying, look, I, I was talking to you guys. I was talking to other churches about you guys. And I was saying, man, the church in Corinth is so fired up to give. And now when we come, are you really going to give? Because <laughs> you said you were fired up and you were willing to give. And you got to think about it, right? Because this happens in our lives. We say something, and oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that because we want to do appear spiritual, but then as time passes, do we really complete what we said. I don't know how it looked in Corinth, and this is all how I imagine it, but I imagine different people in the fellowship saying, yes, or the church as a whole saying, yes, let's give. And then individual people saying, yes, I'm going to give too. But then as time passed, they say, well, I know I said I'm going to give, but I, I, I just need to wait for my property to be sold, and then I'll give. And once that's done, once that's done, I'm going to give. For those that had limited means, that meant they had to save up their funds in order to, hey, I heard Paul's coming next month, let me start saving. And they could have thought, well, maybe I'll start saving just a little bit later. I don't know how it was, but, or maybe they had a bad year farming or their business went bad and, and their ability to give might have decreased a little bit. And, and some may have, over the time, kind of lost heart. Yeah, I know I said I was going to give, but man, it's hard. Who knows what it looked like? And others in the church in Corinth might have been swindled by their brothers. They were taking each other to court. So imagine that. And now there's a big missions collection. You're like, man, I'm not giving. I was swindled. Flat out. I'll pay when I get my money back. You know, there's this kind of, that, that could have been possible. Another family might have been going through a, a difficult year and said, you know, for the sake of our family, we, we love what the church is doing, but we're really just going to focus on our family this year. And that all sounds good, but the church said, we're going to give. We want to help the church in Jerusalem. And as time passed, Paul had to send a delegation because talk is cheap. Talk is cheap, isn't it? You think about the movie Jerry Maguire. It's a great movie, hey? And one of the scenes I love, because if you're familiar with it, uh, this, this will be a, a reminder. If you're not, this will be a spoiler. But Jerry Maguire is this sports agent, Tom Hanks. Tom Cruise. It's another Tom. But, you know, he, he gets hired as a sports agent for Cuba Gooding, who's Rod Titwell in, in the NFL. And, 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 and he says, Jerry, I want you to be my agent. I want you to be my agent, but I'm not really impressed with what you're doing. And there's this one specific phone call, and it flashes back and forth. And Jerry's in his office, his nice office with all the professional people. And, and Cuba Gooding's in the, in the kitchen. And he's like dancing, listening to this music. He's like, come on, Jerry. He's like, are you going to help me, Jerry? He's like... Yes, I'm going to help you. He's like, come on, Jerry. Are you going to help me? Yes, I'm going to help you. Show me the money. Say it with me, Jerry. And Cuba's like dancing and there's music in the background. He's like, say it with me, Jerry. And he's like, show, show you the money. He's like, no, Jerry. Say it. I want to feel it, Jerry. You got to watch this scene, man. It's really awesome. He's like dancing and he's like, yeah. And he's, and 
to sit. He's really getting into it. And then he starts getting Jerry fired up. He's like, say it like you mean it, Jerry. And Jerry says, show me the money. No, Jerry, I want to show me the money. And the entire office is like looking at him and he's lost his mind. He says, you're still my agent, Jerry. I appreciate what you were saying, but talk is cheap, Jerry. Show me the money. And that's comical, but that's kind of what Paul is doing. I know what you said, Corinth. (laughs) Show me the money. Right? That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Think Think about how this applies to our spiritual lives, right? You and I don't get credit for being fired up in the beginning. You might think it's awesome, but nobody gets credit for initial enthusiasm. Talk is cheap. It wasn't like say, man, you were so fired up when you said you were going to do something, but then you didn't do it. That's not how we talk. That could be financially, as in this case. I'll give when I get things sorted. Okay, amen, bro. You get things sorted. Well, I got another thing to sort out. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. I'll give to God when I get a job. Do you have money now? A little bit. Why aren't you giving now? You get a job. Well, I'll give to God when I get a bit of a pay increase. Talk is cheap. I'll give to God when I pay my bills, after I take my holiday, yet never get around to actually giving to God. That's what Paul's going on about here. It could also be about leading. I'll lead my marriage, and I'll start loving my wife after Valentine's Day. That's when I'll start. Or whatever. But then when the time comes, I'll start leading when he or she respects me. Whatever. Talk is cheap. When we say we're going to do something, it needs to be done. I'll parent my kids when they start listening to me. I'll do family devos when they get fired up. I don't know what it is. I'll lead my family when they all get in line. Talk is cheap. We all say these things, but we need to complete it when we say it. It could be about the mission. Because a lot of people say, oh, I'd love to be involved in the mission. And then when it comes time to be in the mission, there's more talk than action. They're fired up about their enthusiasm, but there's nothing connecting the dots. It could be about helping other people. Man, I want to help other people out in the church. I want to I encourage them. I want to teach them. I want to train them. I'm ready to be more connected. But many people talk about that and don't actually do it. Or many people talk about, you know, the best way to really help people and the best way to really counsel people and the best way to really encourage people. They have all these thoughts and all these opinions, but they're flat not encouraging or counseling anybody. Talk is cheap. That's all Matthew 7. Lord, Lord. Talk is cheap. If you're trying to see God, a lot of people say, man, this, this fires me up. I want to follow Jesus next week. Have you read the Bible? Not yet. Come on, bro. Talk's cheap, man. No, I'll see God once I finish high school. Because then I'll have a little better, better plan in my life. Actually, I'll seek God when I finish uni. Because then I'll have my life lined up. Actually, I'll seek God after we have our baby. I'll seek God after we settle down. Whatever. It's always getting pushed back. This talk is cheap. And so we have to let our willingness match by being complete in it. And I tell you, we got to watch this in the religious world. We have to watch this for ourselves equally as well. Because as we mature as Christians, it can just be more about talk. And as we interact with the religious world, I hear so many people talk about wanting to follow Jesus, but flat out not following Jesus. And I can be the same way, and you can be the same way. 
And Paul says, don't be like that. Talk is cheap. Let our willingness to start match our willingness to complete. Third and last, show me the money. There it is. Third and last, comparisons can stir us. You'll see that's what he says in verse 8, right? He's not trying to create like a, a super large gift by saying, hey, they're giving more and you should give more to that. He's, he's comparing their hearts. And the goal of that is to stir. I'm not trying to cause competition. I'm not commanding you in verse 8. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And, and here's what I want to do, Corinth. Look at these churches. Look at the Macedonian churches. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. And look at their eagerness, verses 2 through 5. They were going through a severe trial. They were extremely poor. But they gave more than they actually should have given. Some might have even thought, that's not wise. In fact, they pleaded with me to give. Paul didn't even originate this gift giving. It was from the churches in Macedonia. Hey, we heard there's a need. Can we help? Can we give? Yes. Boom. Here's our gift. Wow. That's, are you serious? That's way too much. I'm not sure that's why. Wow. Hey, that's what we want to do. We're so earnest. We're, we're so excited. They gave more than we could. When you read the book of Thessalonians and you see it in Acts, how it was planted, man, it's like persecution hovering around that church. Poverty in that church. And it seems like there's people in the church that aren't even working. Paul has said, hey, man, you got to get a job. You know, but there's all these uh, issues. There's this external pressure. But yet when the time comes to give, they give. Now, Corinth, that's Macedonia. Now you, Corinth, you really haven't experienced any persecution. In fact, I've had to tell you, separate yourselves more from the world. And there's a lot of you guys that are quite affluent. And you have members that are well off. You have these big feasts sometimes before you come to church and you don't let other people come in. You guys, you guys got money. You guys got faith. You guys got knowledge. You guys got wisdom. But when it comes to this, this poor, persecuted church outmatched you by their attitude. And I want to I compare that. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to say this is a competition to raise funds, but look at their heart and look at yours. And you're actually in a better position to give. And, and the net result was Macedonia was pleading with me. Paul, please, can we give? And I, Paul, am pleading with you in Corinth. Corinth, you said you were going to give. Please give. It's like the opposite. It's the opposite. But, it, but, but his goal is to say, look at that heart and be inspired by it. Not like, oh, well, I know those people at Thessalonica. No, be inspired by that. Look at their situation. And look at their heart. Look at their eagerness. Look at their willingness. Look at their zeal. Imitate that. A comparison can stir us to action. But I think it's tempting to think, man, that's kind of messed up. Imagine I come up to you and say, bro, let me tell you about this brother and sister. Why aren't you like that? You're like, you know, what's the deal with that? It sounds kind of wrong. Until we see Jesus doing it very blatantly. Luke chapter 7. There's a sinful woman and there's Simon the Pharisee. She interrupts the dinner, makes a big scene, 
And Jesus turns to Simon and says, You see this woman right here? This is your house, Simon. And you didn't do squat. I came into your house. You invited me. She interrupted it. She broke this perfume. She wiped my feet. She wept. And she... This is... You don't get it, man. Look at her. And look at you. Man, that's... Ah, that should have that should have cut him. It stirred it. Oh man, this woman who everybody knows is simple. Look what she's doing. What am I doing at this table? You're right, Jesus. But we don't get any of that. And so they can stir, but they can also harden people as well. But but I think it, it's a good tool to use. It's not the only tool, but it is a tool to help other people in action, isn't it? And we don't have to use names, although Paul and Jesus do. (laughs) But we don't have to use names, right? It's amazing, though, sometimes how those in our fellowship that have complicated issues, health or physical or additional challenges, are often the most connected. I mean, making every effort to to make it to stuff. Why is that? And then the most capable of us, have a hard time. I, it, it's like, why is that? It's a, look at these, look at your brothers and sisters, and then look at your heart. That, 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 that should stir us. It's amazing to me. We have brothers and sisters in Papua New Guinea that walk hours to go to church. And they're fired up when they get there. And sometimes we sneeze and we feel like, oh, I can't go to church. Can't make it today. True. It's just flat out true. And look at our brothers and sisters are walking, sweating, coming to church. That's awesome. I think look at our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are like getting kicked out of their homes, getting kicked out of their cities for sharing the gospel. And we have trouble talking to our neighbors and our coworkers and Man, those examples should stir us. But often we say, oh, don't compare me to that. I'm just comparing the heart. Look at the situation. Look at their heart. It should stir you into action. And I think as we conclude, let's be grateful that we have this model of Jesus, right? The world doesn't have that. We have this model of Jesus who's incredibly generous, leaving first world wealth, deliberately going to third world, coming to earth, being human and rescuing humanity. And when you and I imitate him, we start to cheerfully give to others because we stand, hey, I know what Jesus did for me. I can cheerfully give to others. And when we imitate Jesus, we don't just simply talk, but our willingness matches what we say and we finish the task. And when we imitate him, we're inspired and stirred by our brothers and sisters when they're used as examples. And then we become a community who excels in the grace of giving. Amen. Amen.